when we practice meditation, investigate yourself, find out where's the real happiness. Is it from holding on or is it from letting go? Holding on, holding on. We're investing ourselves in the wrong way. So we practice to be mindful. What's given is great, and when it's when it's gone, let it go. When we let out this rubbish and just let it go, then the path to purifying ourselves, our minds, our hearts, it rises up in front of us. And we're troubled and besieged by the world. As happy as we can be for a certain amount of years, at any point, at any time, things can just turn over and we can be absolutely miserable. We don't, many of us don't have a real refuge. And so the Buddha gives us the conditions or the tools, the equipment to develop a real refuge. But we have to develop it. We can't just subscribe to it like, yes, okay, I'll do this. And then it's a chanting book. So you pull it out once in a while, you do some chants, light some candles, bow to a shrine. And then life goes on as usual. You have to do more than that. We have to make consequential changes in our lives to realign ourselves with that which will support the truth in us to investigate all our activities and align them with that which supports the truth in us. So we examine who we hang out with, what kind of entertainments we follow, uh, the way we speak, the way we act, even the way we think. If we're thinking in negative ways, if we're invested in fear, and you'll say, I don't invest in fear. Fear just takes hold of me. But this is wrong understanding of the suffering that we're involved with and grasping onto it. Sometimes the, the darkness, because it's familiar, we just hang on to it because nothing else seems within reach. So we'd rather hang on to the thing that's choking us than have nothing at all we have to investigate what is that nothing at all we're so scared of. The Buddha does give us steps, step-by-step -step procedures and practices, exercises to use, like watching the breath, watching the long breath, the short breath, experiencing, calming, uh, seeing, noticing, contemplating understanding. Little by little, uh, we develop our insight, and then that gives us the ability to take these fears and these states of grief and dismantle them, dissipate them, dissolve them, so that we can touch the truth. And we do, we do this by seeing their impermanence, seeing the suffering, and seeing that they're empty of any self. It's the self, that, that self, that big Mara, 
keeps creeping up and dancing in front of us and convincing us, this is who you are. All this package of beliefs and habits and inclinations and desires and opinions with a capital O, capital O-P-I, capital O-N, I-O-N-S, I spelled it wrong. Opinions are like open onions. They just make us cry in the end. Weep. Weep. But at the core of an onion, there is sweetness. Sweet. So if we can get underneath the opinion, we can let it go. Instead of signing up for it, we sign up for social opinion, etc., etc., etc. So much opinion. Other people's opinions is a big one. How much we sign up for other people's opinions. Please like me. What's that? I remember in school feeling pressured to dress like the other girls, to wear the cool clothes and, and have a cool hairdo. If only they could see me now. <laughs> Of course, a few years ago, baldness became fashionable. But people were getting bald for the wrong reasons, weren't they? And the reason that we shave our heads is to not focus on the beautifying of the body. And in our monastery, we shave our heads once a week. And when we shave, the hair, it's, you can't just shave it once. You have to keep shaving it because it grows back. Well, it's the same with the hindrances. The hindrances, greed, ill will, or negativity, aversion, anger, restlessness, anxiety, or sleepy, sleepy, dull states of mind, boredom, or doubt, mistrust, lack of confidence lack of conviction. These things are constantly dragging us this way and that way, wanting more things, or pushing away what we don't like, wanting more friends, or avoiding the ones, the people we don't like. These things are constantly taking us over. And when we practice meditation, concentration practices, we focus the mind, your, your breath becomes very soft, sensitive. You're getting right in there. It starts to take up all of consciousness. You feel like your whole body is just this one breath. Your mind gets really calm. You go deeper, deeper. Everything is quiet. You feel so peaceful. And then you get up, go back to work, and all the hindrances come rushing back. You're pulled this way and that, and you want that beautiful, peaceful mind state again. You have to shave your head. <laughs> Every week we have to just keep shaving because we can't just cut them off like that superficially. We have to uproot them. We have to uproot anger, uproot greed, uproot delusion. Not just cut it superficially because it grows back. We have to keep practicing Deeply, more deeply going into the 
most interior recesses of the heart. And there, we can actually uproot these hindrances. There is a state called fearlessness. It's doable. There is a state of non-greed. It's doable. There is a state of non-anger. It is possible. There is a state of not abiding in a sense of self, believing that there's this person that we have to keep propping up and gratifying. This person with five sense doors that are eager for gratification. Wanting sounds, wanting tastes, wanting touch sensations that are pleasing, not, not pleasing. That is, this kind of a being is completely equanimous with whatever comes, irregardless. This is possible. Some people might think, well, that sounds really boring. <laughs> but it isn't at all boring. It's exhilarating. We're the ones that are in trouble, that are enslaved by desire, because when we're bored, we're always, we need to put something in our mouths or in our ears or in our noses or in our, I mean, when you think about it, it's, it's pathetic. We just constantly have to gratify our sense doors. We are slaves to our sense doors, to our sense. These are media. Now we become slaves to somebody else's media, too. The commercial media, like the neighbors, the TV is always on. Every time I look out the window in the morning, it's on. Everybody is watching this thing. And if you look at it, I was observing through the window. And I noticed that what appears on the screen keeps changing. It's one thing, and then within three seconds, this thing is flashing. There's a psychological reason that they're doing that. There's very astute programmers, because they know that we have this attention deficit disorder, all of us. Can't focus very long. So if you want to capture your audience, you have to give them a different image every few seconds to keep them interested. So people get addicted to this stuff. And then we let the kids watch. We have three-year-old kids coming to the monastery who have iPads. This is the toy. I was completely mesmerized. This kid was playing on the iPad with this three-dimensional looking scenery of armies and little beings fighting and all that kind of terrible stuff. I remember living in the village in India and the kids had nothing. They were dirt poor. They would have an old rusty tin can and a stick and they were playing like that for hours having so much fun with nothing they had nothing they had so much fun they were creative they knew exactly how to play they could be real children they could make a whole world out of sticks and stones and sand and go hide behind a wall or a tree, hide and seek. Do you remember hide and seek? We used to play hide and seek. Now what do kids do? They don't have enough. I visit homes, people call me and ask me to come and bless their new house.
or bless their car or bless the baby. And they've got a room just for the toys. This is what children grow up with now. And it's not enough. Not enough. Mommy, mommy, buy me this. Mommy, mommy, I want that. This is what we're cultivating. This is what we're conditioning children to do. Where's the Dhamma? Where's, how would these kids ever be able to touch the truth? Some of them, because of their good karma from previous lives, will see through all that. But the vast majority will just become good consumers. And they'll keep adding to the continent of rubbish located in the Pacific Ocean that occasionally belches onto the beaches of the Hawaiian Islands, the Midway Islands. This is what we've done to our world through greed, through ignorance through disgust, through when we're upset by something and throw it out. My brother works in the Department of the Environment for the United States government and also has a center in Ohio for sustainability and resilience. So he's dedicated to cleaning up helping people clean up. It's funny, I'm working with spiritual environment, he's working with the external environment. We have good talks. And I, I once asked him, what happens to all the stuff in the stores that doesn't get sold? Because every season, shopkeepers put out new things. They don't sell all the old stuff. What happens to it? And he says, I don't want to tell you. It was bad. <laughs> How do you know? He said, I know. He works with companies who resolve this kind of thing. Because the world wants new. The world doesn't want old stuff. Just like the TV that keeps flashing new pictures off the screen to mesmerize our sense media. So shopkeepers have to flash new products on their shelves to attract customers. They don't want to keep seeing the same dresses on the racks, the same shoes, the same cameras, the same appliances. It's got to be new. It's got to be different. But what we're looking for is we're looking for that which is sustainable. Even if we had a fridge that lasted forever, we still wouldn't be happy because of that. That is what's going to make us happy. But the world is moving towards cheaper and cheaper. Cheaper experiences, cheaper production, everything, even the foods that we eat. And the advertisements, easily, you can't rely on, on what people claim their product to be. And many large companies are taking over the production of certain foods, like... Uh, soybeans, genetically modified foods. What's going on? What are we subjecting ourselves to? We have no control, really, on the outside. But we can reach a state from within that no one else can pollute or destroy or disturb because of their greed, hatred, and delusion.
And if we can do that, then we can bring a place, a momentum, a force of some strength to this world where there is a, a fearlessness, there is an indestructible peace, there is an unpollutable purity, and it's at the level of the heart. And this is the most difficult thing that a human being can do. It's also the most noble. So why would we want to dedicate ourselves to anything less than that? For the sake of our own well-being, for the sake of our families, our children, may the wheel of truth, this wheel of truth, precious as it is, continue to turn so that even though we may be just tiny waves fluttering across the ocean, when we touch the shore, we will have touched it knowing the truth and we will pass on that knowledge just by having realized the truth within ourselves. It keeps it alive. It keeps it alive. So more precious than staying alive in the body is to live with wakefulness, to live the truth. Because the, the death of the body is, is, is written. It's part of the, the play, part of the dance of life. And if we didn't have this kind of rounded dance that has a beginning and has an end, it wouldn't be true. It wouldn't be like an in-breath and an out-breath. A breath is not complete unless it goes in and out. If it doesn't, if it only goes in and doesn't go out, that's death. So to be a complete being, we have to live and die. But what's living and dying is only the vehicle. It takes us to the truth. Once we understand the truth, we don't need to hang on to the vehicle. We can just let it go. Each of us meditating on the breath, if we can observe a mind state that's unwholesome, a moment of irritation or critical view of someone else, holding a grudge against someone else. On the in-breath, in comes the grudge. We see it, we know, oh, there's poison, suffering. By the time the out-breath is happening, we can let it go. That's the death of anger, death of grudge, death of resentment, death of ill will. That's the death to be practicing and then we give life we give space we give breadth to generosity to loving kindness to non-violence to compassion empathy care for others selflessness and then we feel so beautiful we feel truly alive our whole body feels the current of that lovingness, that, that purity, that, 
truth, integrity. There's a moral well-being in us. And that supports us, whatever we have to do. If we are untrue to someone or to ourselves, we're very aware of that, but we quickly try to cover it up. It's impossible to cover up. If we cover it, it's only like a band-aid and it comes off. If it doesn't come off early in life, if we hide that, like somewhere in your computer you have a file that's got a virus, eventually it comes out and destroys the computer. So any kind of unskillful thing that we've done, any harm we've caused to anyone, including ourselves, if we've hidden away from that or denied it for some period of time, eventually when we become ill or older and we need more energy, the body has to release that thing. It can't hide it anymore because that's taking up strength. So then suddenly, out of the blue, comes this illness or this disability or this debilitating condition that zaps our strength. Very often it comes up in midlife when the body begins to decline more visibly. And we become subjected to different psychological or physical conditions that we can't cope with. And we need help, we need to get help. That the power of being integrated, morally integrated from head to toe is indescribable. It's a real power. This is the this is the Buddha's teaching. This is the path of purification, Pur- purification of mind. We try to keep the bodies pure. The body cannot be purified. It's full of impurities. No matter what kind of food we put into our mouths, it comes out smelly. This is nature. We are constantly oozing sweat. All our glands are expressing themselves. So we have to wash and put deodorant and nice scents and freshen up. Otherwise we stink and no one wants us around. (laughs) But we're quite happy to carry our bad moods here, there, and everywhere. (laughs) Our bad moods need to be cleared out, not invited in. So the four great efforts, these are true efforts. We have to make effort. This isn't going to happen by itself unless we train ourselves. Whatever wholesome states we've cultivated or learned and developed and can practice, we should sustain them, make them sustainable. This is important. Spiritual environment, make it sustainable. Whatever pollutants, intoxicants, we're talking drugs and alcohol, too. Intoxicating substances, any addictions, food, TV, cell phones, gadgets, any obsessions of mine, we have to somehow free ourselves from those abandon them as fast as possible. This is true for the environment, 
externally, internally as well. Whatever medicine, healing ingredients there are from the outside that we can bring into the heart to strengthen and sustain our moral integrity and our wisdom based on that purity of mind and right view, ability to see the truth as truth and what's false as false and not mistake them one for another. Whatever kind of experiences or substances or, or climate, like being around spiritual friends, we can associate with or bring into the heart, we should do so to further our growth and maturity in uh, moral integrity, to be integrated morally, ethically, virtuously, rightly acting, speaking, thinking, being harmless, gratitude for all that we have, and content with what we have that is supportive in this process. And whatever poisons, toxins, or harmful beings, experiences, relationships, um, places to hang out there are in the world, we should keep a distance from them, not engage with them, not go near them, not allow ourselves to be tainted, burnt, pushed, pressured by those beings, experiences or things including the media, including the media, how much pressure the media puts on the sense media to which we are wired about how we should be, how we should dress, we should buy, consume, travel, what we should vote for, support, what kind of practices we do or don't do, all of this. We have to carefully, very sensitively, wisely consider and contemplate not only how we breathe, eat, and dress, walk, sit, stand, where we lie down, but where we're living and who we associate with and how that affects us. Our sake for our children, yeah, how we spend our money, and what we do with money, what does money do to us, what does desire around money, around power, around ownership or control do to us, do to the mind, what does relinquishment do, what kind of messages are we receiving? And sending. How many, how many of us send messages, emails, texts, etc.? Very few. Post. Anybody still using the post? Well, it's very important to notice the messages that are coming in through our sense media. So check messages. 
check the messages and screen and filter messages that are harmful, messages that are beneficial. Allowing in, this is what mindfulness can do. It helps check messages. Uh-oh, here comes one of those. And you, you just stop it. You delete. Or you put up a, a filter. You don't even allow it to enter your mailbox. So not to allow these things into the mind. Even more important. Maybe I'll stop there for now. Let's sit together for a while.